Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series with Richard Mandel. And this is an exciting podcast for us because Richard is actually here in Northeast Ohio joining us in our studio. He's the first in-studio guest since we obtained our podcast recording equipment in December. So this is a monumental occasion for us. But before we get going with Richard, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a great supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, They're a great supporter of everybody in the industry, including us here at GCI. So we're happy to have them on board, and we're happy to have Richard here. So, Richard, it's great having you here in Northeast Ohio. It's awesome that you're in the studio. Thanks for joining us. What have you been up to these days? Well, first, let me just tell you, I love being in Northeast Ohio in a big snowstorm in March. That's the best time, you know, springtime in Paris, winter in Northeast Ohio, and it's been a great experience so far. I heard it's not much warmer in Pinehurst right now, though. No, uh, yes, what I was doing, what I've been doing lately, we've got a couple of new projects. We're pretty busy. We've got about eight or nine projects at different um, stages in the process. One in particular, Monday, we were doing course walkthroughs at a place called Methodist University, and it was about 34 degrees, and there was some sleet involved. Sleet? So don't they shut all the roads down there? Isn't it, isn't it chaotic when it when there's that in the Carolinas and Georgia? Well, there is, yes, but this particular one was sort of just a very, you know, 10% chance of rain and the temperature dipped and so it wasn't such a big deal. Although we were expecting stuff the day before that never really materialized. It was just a dusting. Obviously, in your line of work, golf course architecture, things evolve over time, sometimes slowly and sometimes quickly. What are some of the evolutions right now? What are some of the trends in in the business and things you're getting a lot of calls about? Well, most of the things move very slowly in the business. You know, every now and then you might get a real diamond in the rough, quick project from the time you get a phone call to the time you actually start work. But usually it's years in the, in the making. And so uh, trends, trends are very slow going as well in golf architecture. The minimalist trend is some something that people still probably consider a trend, but that's been a boat that's been sailing for a good decade and a half or so now, and really is just a return to the great golf architecture of the golden age back in the 20s. And then another trend is trying to address golfers and where they're playing off the tee. Uh, going back to, you know, Barney Adams started this tee it forward idea, and now the long leaf tee system, and I know Jane Beljane, who's a great ASGCA member who's got her own system. And I've actually have my own something called Tee Shot Distance Equity that I've been doing since uh, the late 90s. It sounds like a very scientific and calculated term. What does it mean? The, the story behind it was I used to be on the board of directors for a nonprofit, sort of a precursor to the first tee called Champions for Kids in Raleigh. And we had a fundraiser at a course in Cary, North Carolina. And the, one of the other board members was Kathy Whitworth. And she and I stat, sat on a par three tee box and each group came through and I got them to spend a little money and, you know, you throw $5 down on the ground and you can use Kathy's tee shot and you double your money or something, things like that. So there's a lot of downtime. And so Kathy and I just started talking about golf architecture and all. And one of her pet peeves was this whole concept of how you know, everybody hits from the ladies' tee, the men's tee, the reds, the whites, the blues, whatever, and everybody, you know, it's supposed to equalize golf. And she very wisely pointed out that that's not true. What it does is it gets everybody to the same position in the fairway from the tee, but once you're in that same spot in the fairway, say 150 yards, equality ends right there. And so 
sort of just thinking about that, you know, a better way to go about things was not so that everyone has the same yardage, because if we're all hitting from 150, you know, I might be hitting a seven iron, Tiger Woods might be hitting a sand wedge, and Tiger's grandmother might be hitting a seven wood. So a better approach in my mind and is what tee shot distance equity is about is instead of everyone having the same yardage to the green, everybody should have the same club to the green. And so how I go about that is I sort of design backwards. I'll admit everybody starts design wise, we, we stretch the golf course. And so the golf, we're going to start from the back tees and figure out what the distance is and then try to figure out what the club going into that green should be. And part of my system, part of my design philosophy in general is using every club in your bag. I'm trying to do that with every part four, every part three, and every, and it's hard to do it with every part five, really, but with every part three and part four. So we, we sort of figure out what that ideal club is from the approach club from the back tee is, and then try, and then work ourselves backwards distance wise from the green for every other subsequent tee. And my numbers that I use have been numbers that um, people have studied how far people hit the ball with every club in their bag based on swing speed. So we don't really base on handicap because there are great golfers that, I mean, used to be a five handicap that I got in the golf business. That was a mistake, but I'm about a 10, 12 handicap now, but I hit it about 240, 250. And there's somebody out there that's probably 25, you know, most Guys my age hit it 275, but they might be 25 handicapper. So you got to do it on, based on swing speed. So we work our way back, basically, and, and, and do it in such a way so that if we do our job the right way, if everybody hits from the right set of tees, they'll all have the same club into the green on each hole. How often do you find that a golf course ha- has the right tees? Do most courses right now just don't have it right? They have three or four sets, and it, it's not fair to everybody? A golf course that is, say, 7,000 yards long or so, in order to really achieve tee shot distance equity with all the different golfer types out there, uh, you know, gender, age, et cetera, et cetera, you really need to have six or seven tee boxes that are roughly three, 350, maybe 400 yards apart in order to achieve that equity. Uh, the, the biggest deficiency I see is in the front tees. And a lot of the golf courses have no tee boxes at all, less than 52 or 5,500 yards in some cases. In many cases, not less than 5,000. And it's imperative to have at least a front set of tees that are in the 45 to 4,800 yard range. Now you could take that a step further and have junior tees and, and, and kids tees in the 3,500 yard range. But beyond that, you know, really you've got to have a, the first set of tees in the 45 to 4,800 yards uh, set up and then moving your way back to 7,000. Now, we do a lot of renovation and restoration work, so a lot of the older courses aren't 7,000 yards, and they're never going to get to 7,000 yards. So in those cases, of courses that max out at 64, 65, or 6,600 yards, obviously there's a whole set of tee boxes or two that you can't worry about, that you don't have to worry about. Are these tees there, or do you have to go find them? I mean, when you do a site visit and you're maybe adding some tees that are a little further up, can you visualize it right away? Is it something that takes a long time to, to figure out? Well, it's not a visualization stand, situation at that point. Really, you look at the scorecard and you can see, okay, front tees are 5,300. There's a problem. The next tee is 5,500. Well, that's kind of close. The next tee is 6,200. Well, there's a gap. So you know you're looking for a gap, you know, for a, a consistent gap of 300, 400 yards between each tee box. So that's your first sign. 
But then when you start laying things out, this is where the, the science comes in that you, we, we overlay maps and we do everything in AutoCAD and we overlay maps and we can measure things very quickly and very easily and we can move things very easily and very quickly as well. So we'll just start laying things out and we'll lay arcs out. That'll be for each of the five, six, or seven T-boxes that we're creating. So we're almost starting from scratch with the system just to lay things out first. And then we're gonna look and see, okay, well, let's see, we're trying to create six T-boxes here. There are only four there now. Three of those fit perfectly in our T-shot distance equity, so we only need to build three more T-boxes, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to switch topics a little bit, and we're going to skip fairways and go right to greens. Okay. Is bentgrass becoming an endangered species in the southeast where you do some of your work? Are you seeing less and less of it, and are you seeing more conversions to the ultradwarf Bermuda grass? Yes, yes, and yes. And I think it's a good thing. Like, I'm not a golf course. I'm, I'm, I'm not an agronomist. Nor do I profess to be, but to me, there's common sense involved. A warm season grass in a warm season climate, for whatever use, has got to be better than a cool season grass in a warm season climate. And I'm done with that subject. No, I'm just kidding. But it, <laughs> that, that is, that, to me, that seems very logical. And bottom line is, in the 70s and early 80s, when, 70s and 80s, when conditioning got to the point where People in the South decided Bermuda wasn't good enough for their greens. The scientists, the, the agronomists created hybridized bent grasses, and there we are. Well, now they've turned their attention, and you know, another slow-moving trend in the last 10 years or so, to Bermudas. And it seems logical to switch. Now, what's interesting is it, it's definitely taking over, and bent is becoming an endangered species. But... On the flip side, now there are clubs lately that I've been hearing, like, they're only ones left in town, and they're like, well, wait a minute, we've got a marketable commodity here, We come play our bent greens, whereas five years ago, it's come play our Bermuda greens. So I think it's a good thing for golf, um, moving to the Bermuda. And I would think that switching grass varieties really gives a facility an opportunity to assess their greens and think about the architecture of them, right, too. When you see some of these transitions from Bent to Bermuda, do clubs and facilities think about the slopes and contours more, and do they sometimes get it all done at, done at once? Uh, sometimes, but not a lot. We really have been involved in many bunker renovation projects centered around a greens conversion. And, for instance, we're starting one in three weeks in April at Myers Park Country Club which is an old Donald Ross golf course in Charlotte from 1925. And we're renovating all the bunkers, restoring all the bunkers as best as we can based on Ross's drawings and existing conditions and making some playability changes to those bunkers. In the process, they're going to be uh, no-till converting to Bermuda. In so we are going to be redoing all the greens. We happen to be rebuilding two greens completely and four specific greens we're going to look at adjusting some slopes. Now, for me, it's not because they're going from Bent to Bermuda. It's just because those slopes might be just a little bit too much. So now is a good chance to, to soften ridges and things like that. So a lot of clubs are coming up on their 100th anniversaries. If you look at when the Golden Age architects were working, a lot of it was the late 19-teens and, and 1920s until the Depression. Has, has that spurred any movement? Has that spurred any activity? Have you heard stories of clubs wanting to do something big for their, their 100th and maybe restore themselves or modernize themselves? Not, not a restoration for their anniversary. It might just be good timing. Um, I've heard of a lot of clubs getting ready to write books and, and stuff like that. 
Paul, I can't think of any of the clubs that we're working with or any clubs in the past saying we want to dress up for our anniversary. Speaking of books, I read yours recently, both versions, and it's just an incredible read. I'm not sure there are many people that know as much about Pinehurst as Richard. And I thought one of the fascinating things in there was that there was a lot of agronomic dabbling in the history of Pinehurst, right? Richard, talk about some of the experimentation that was going on in the 20s and 30s with different grasses. Sure. And uh, you're talking about the legendary evolution of Pinehurst. It's available on golf-architecture.com. We take credit cards and cash. But, uh, yeah, it's very interesting that the story of grass conversion from sand, really the conversion from sand to grass uh, at the Pioneers courses, specifically Pioneers number two, uh, there was a point in the 20s where the, um, the third green, there were, there were alternate greens. One had uh, sand and one had, uh, actually back then it was, it was bent gra- uh, Bermuda grass. And so Ross and Frank, Donald Ross and Frank Maples, who was the superintendent there, the longtime superintendent from 1907 to 1948, experimented a lot. And they were experimenting, the Tufts family and Ross and Maples were experimenting not just on the greens, but off the greens, trying to come up with a, a Bermuda grass that could give them some sort of a playing surface. I don't know if Maples and Tufts were thinking what, what their goals were, but I've got to think that Ross was thinking, can I create something that I see in Scotland, which it's kind of hard to do in, uh, in Pinehurst. But it was a great story in the book that Leonard Tufts was on a train leaving town or coming back from a, 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 an extended stay and looked in the field where the cows were and noticed how green the grass was where the cows were. And at that point, he realized the fertilization possibilities at Pinehurst, and that really helped spur things on as well. What are some golf course architecture tactics and techniques from the golden age that still work today, and what are some that have no chance of working today? Well, golf architecture philosophies and, 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 and design features, I think they all work today. When you start coupling them with conditioning, that's when you can say, oh, okay, maybe that won't work. And a perfect example is bunker faces. You know, and Tillinghast and, and George Thomas and Flynn and Donald Ross all built their bunkers. Well, Flynn always flashed sand, and Ross flashed sand a lot more than most people think. But bunker faces weren't ever intended to be um, maintained almost to the level of rough. They didn't care what grew on those bunker faces. So in response, their bunker faces were pretty steep. And so when we do restoration work, well, that's one adjustment we make. We go from a 2 to 1, 3 to 1 face to a 5 to 1, 6 to 1 slope. Whatever we can do to help the superintendent maintain a grass, a grassy face on there that isn't authentic to the golden age, but is what's demanded by today's golfers. So that's one aspect that, you know, is hard to transition. Of course, you know, lots of people also now, we, we, we've done it ourselves. We're just wrapping up Country Club of Asheville in Asheville, North Carolina. We've got Zoysia faces on the bunkers. And it looks great and all, and, and it's good. The reason we're doing it is maintenance-wise, is you can mow Zoysia in the heat of summer half as often as you'd have to mow Bermuda, which I'm 100% in favor of. But a lot of people want to do it for aesthetic purposes. And I've seen a lot, some work, some restoration work by Ra- of Ross and others that have zoysia, zoysia faces and 
grass, you know, flat sand bunkers. And one thing you know about Donald Ross, because he said it, he's he's quoted with this, is he always wanted you to know that sand was there. So he would always flash enough so that you knew it was there. But in a lot of these situations, the only way you know is is always your faces, and that wouldn't happen. When you have a bunker conversation with a club or members of a club or a ownership group at a public facility, where do those conversations start? Are they usually maintenance-driven or are they aesthetic-driven? It's mostly maintenance. You know, there's deferred maintenance in municipal projects a lot more than private projects because the money's just not there. And so bunkers need to be rebuilt at some point. But there are many bunkers that have gotten just so large over the years based on edging. And there are just a lot of ill-advised placed bunkers that are nothing but penalty. You know, there's a, there's penalty in their strategy. And if I was to create a bumper sticker, my bumper sticker would say, a hazard is to challenge the golfer, not penalize the golfer. And so if you think about that, a hazard that's just two, ha- two bunkers down the left side of the fairway and two bunkers down the right side of the fairway do nothing but catch poor shots. But a bunker sort of in the middle of the fairway, a golfer has four choices, short, long, left, or right. That's a hazard that's strategic. If you negotiate that hazard successfully, you gain an advantage. So we find a lot of penal hazards, and we eliminate those. And uh, the challenge is in constructing those bunkers. You want to do something kind of interesting, but you really have to be aware of the limitations of the maintenance staff at a municipal golf course. And we've got a lot of municipal work right now. And that, that's that's a challenge for me to keep that in check. So number one is we minimize the number of bunkers. You know, you could have 50 bunkers that are easily maintainable. Or what if you had 30 that maybe take 10% more a little bit? I think the, the resultant effort would be less in that regard. One of the things we do on the, these podcasts is we talk about some of the influences on our guests' career. And you mentioned Frank Maple's earlier, and you have a relationship with the Maples family, right? I do have a direct lineage, not just past Maples, but all the way to Ross and and old Tom Morris, right? Old Tom Morris begat Don Ross. I think that's how it goes, right? And Don Ross begat Ellis Maples, and Ellis begat Dan Maples. And I worked for Dan as an intern back in 1990 and right out of college for a little bit, along with a guy named Mike Leeson. So we sort of got to, for, for a guy who does a lot of Ross work, you know, people think, well, Dan Maples doesn't really look anything like Donald Ross. They both wear glasses, so that's not true. I'm just joking. But his work We both have glasses on right now, by the way. That's right. That's (laughs) right. But, you know, Dan Maples' look, his appearance of his golf courses may not be very Donald Ross-like, but the way that both of those guys got from a blank piece of property to a finished golf course construction-wise and pragmatically is the same. There's obviously a business side to what you do. What has it been like over the the course of the last 15 to 20 years running a golf course architecture business? You've probably seen a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and some in-betweens. What is it like right now? We're hiring. We're expanding. We've never been busier. And I've had a nice upward trajectory, a slow upward trajectory. some point, somebody's going to say, well, he's overnight sensation, you know, overnight you know, hit or whatever, 25 years in the making. And I started in the early 90s on my own. And those were the lows. We were, you know, poverty level, basically, and did all sorts of other things to to keep afloat and just slowly chipped away at it. And around 2005 was a turning point a little bit for me. I I got Raleigh Country Club, which was my first Ross course. And I started working uh, at Army-Navy Country Club up in Washington, D.C. And it just continued to go. And once 2008 hit, 
we never looked back and we never slowed down one bit. I mean, we, you know, everybody goes to troughs here and there, but it was a very low trough for us. And we've just been going uphill while everyone else has been struggling, which has been great. And so now that we're feeling that the golf business is picking up again, I feel good about where I'm at. What is it like running your own business? You obviously have to do site visits, and that's why you're in a place like Northeast Ohio in March. What, what is it like balancing the needs of what you have back home and running a business and what you want to do as an architect on the sites? One of the keys to the success of balancing that is – there are two keys, actually. One way I looked at it is I used to be able to do a lot of work on planes and in airports, and I still can. But I've transitioned into, thank God I can sleep on planes now because I need that sleep. I read on planes. That's where I take all the uh, industry research and other publications, and that, that's, that's like my research time. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I read Golf Course Industry Magazine on the plane all the time. Oh, monthly, of course. So the, there, you have to be organized. You have to have systems in place. You know, golf course architecture is a very creative process, but I approach it in a very um, specific way, step by step. The creativity comes, but you have to have a way to get there. You have to document where you're going with things and all that. It makes, makes you know, things a lot easier that way. So you have to be organized and you have to have a system in place in order to accomplish a lot of work. Do you get to watch a lot of golf? Do you get to play a lot of golf on courses that you're not working on? And what goes your, through your mind when you're uh, looking at a golf course, whether it's on TV or, or playing it with friends and family? Well, most people in the golf business will tell you, gosh, we hardly get to play golf. And I'm no different. And I probably play maybe 10, 10 rounds a year. And it's partially because of business, but partially because I've got two two young boys and they're both interested in playing golf now, and we just have to find the time. We're a basketball-centric family, and I'm coaching a lot. Um, and so we don't get a lot of chance to play golf, nor do I watch a lot of it on TV just because we're so busy. Um, I like to watch it on TV, you know, the events where the courses are pretty cool, you know, um, especially the major championships at, at Golden Age venues. I'm looking at those carefully. When I play... It's it's a little hard to separate the golf and the architecture in the sense that either I'm going to walk I walk more courses with my camera and not my clubs more so than with my clubs and it's a lot easier that way because you can really focus on the details and the details that you hone in on you know the big pictures of okay here are the tees here's the fairway there's water here are bunkers I understand the bunkers there's the green et cetera et cetera you take that in pretty quickly. But what I'm mostly interested in in a lot of these courses is the very small details of construction, the, the transitions from fairway into bunkers, out of bunkers, into a, into a putting surface, things like that. What do those faces look like? How do the faces transition around from the, from the fill pad of the green back around? And how accessible are bunkers? You know, I've had a few clients say, well, gee, Rich, some of these bunkers are hard to get in and out of. And so we really work on minimizing that. But yet sometimes when you, when you look at some of these golf courses that the tour plays on, forget about it, trying to get in and out of those bunkers. So what's next for you? What's your next goal or objective or what's something you have not done in your career that you'd really like to do over the, the course of the next few years? Well, we... We're really strong with municipal golf. We just got a big 54-hole project, 18 are, are, are a, a par-three course, but 
the other 36 are regulation. It's Tanglewood Park in, in Clemens, South Carolina. And we'll actually be working a little bit with Bruce Charlton of Robert Trent Jones to firm because it's an original Robert Trent Jones course. So we want to make sure that they're happy with what, everything we do. And we've got a 45-hole a, a project in, in Sarasota, Florida called Bobby Jones Golf Course. 18 holes are Ross, and that's exciting. Nine holes are Robert Bruce Harris. And I think I might be the only one that's excited about that, but I am. So my goals really are to sort of move up the ladder a little bit. We all want to do new work. And I actually have a new project under construction right now for the city of Edina called Braemar Golf Course. And it's got everything that I like to do, central hazards, uh, a minimum number of bunkers, a lot of ground game ac action. But, of course, we want more new work. And I'd like to do more of the high-end private country club work. And that's a bit of a challenge because for some reason these clubs think that if you haven't ever done one of those and you're no good. And that's just not the case. And of course it's not the case. And it's interesting, well, you know, we've we've been criticized, well, you know, your name's not big enough. You know, well Dai's only got three letters, right? But your name's not big enough. I mean that's a bunch of baloney too. You know, I mean what do you want? You want a good product or you want a name? And there are a lot of people out there that have done a few greens here and there as a working for a contractor or on their own and all and are able to put all these big clubs on their list. And the, the, the clubs, you know, I'm sure the architects do a good job, but I don't think that the, me the members really, really vet well enough. And we get dismissed right out of the gate when we have a great product. And I think we're one of the busiest firms in the, in the, in the world right now. Last thing, where can our listeners go to read more about your firm and read some of the articles you've done. I know you have an excellent website. Where can they go to find that? Our website is golf-architecture.com. Well, this was great having you here. This was a lot of fun. It was cool. And we've both done sports talk radio. So it was awesome to have you in the studio. Thanks for coming to Northeast Ohio, Richard. Congratulations on your success and good luck with everything you're doing this year. Thank you very much. And thanks for not asking me about the Cleveland Cavaliers.